Hello, my name is Randy Ostra, President and CEO of Prometica. I'm pleased to welcome you to this eight-part series of healthcare reform discussions with nationally recognized health policy experts. These interviews will discuss Medicare policy, including healthcare pricing, long-term care, and the social determinants of health. This series is part of an ongoing two-year effort by more than a dozen hospital CEOs from around the U.S. to urge Congress to take up significant health care policy reform legislation, largely by calling for the creation of a National Commission on Health Care Reform. It is our intent that these policy reforms discussed during these interviews demonstrate our desire for substantive national reform. Moreover, that these interviews help to further inform congressional members and committee staff as they work to craft legislation to improve health care delivery and financing during the next Congress. Our motivation is straightforward. Well before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were adamant that race, age, and or economic circumstances should not be defined as pre-existing conditions. Nor do we accept the premise that Americans should be resigned to live shorter lives in poorer health. We invite you to listen to or to read the transcripts of all eight interviews. If you'd like to provide comment, you can do so via the contact information noted at the conclusion of these interviews. Welcome to this series of eight interviews concerning health care policy reform. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me to discuss federal drug policy, moreover prescription drug pricing policy, is Dr. Mark Miller, Executive Vice President at Arnold Ventures and former Executive Director of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, or MedPAC. Mark, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Dr. Miller's bio is posted with this interview's audio file and transcript. On background, in addition to hospital and physician prices, the topic of my previous interview with Bob Berenson, the U.S. also spends substantially more than comparative countries on prescription medicines. For example, the U.S. pays three times what the U.K. spends for the top 20 highest revenue grossing brand name drugs, and upwards of four times for single source drugs. Medicare Part B and D drugs cost approximately two to four times what comparable countries pay and spending is projected to continue to rise rapidly. High prices are explained largely by economic rent-seeking and anti-competitive practices, including patent evergreening and pay-for-delay tactics. As a result, medication non-adherence is epidemic, responsible for an estimated 10% of hospitalizations. Among Medicare beneficiaries, 90% of whom are prescribed medication, upwards of 60% are non-adherent in part due to cost. Among those that do adhere, a recent study published in 2018 estimated 42% of cancer patients depleted their entire net worth within the first two years of treatment. So with that as background, let me uh, begin by just asking you generally, Mark, how would you assess U.S. drug pricing policy? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, it's a it's fairly broad question, so... We'll see if I'm I'm tracking to to what you're asking. Well, just your general overall comments to begin. Yeah. Okay. So then I think I I would start here, and I, I would say this. I think the way that I look at this is that in in the U.S. there is something of a, a you know a social contract, 
an innovator comes forward, gets a patent, using that patent and other exclusivities through FDA, is able to um, market their drug, assuming they can bring it to, to market, without competition for an extended period of time. During that time, I think what the problem has become is more and more launch prices have increased and prices have continued to escalate. Certainly list prices, we can get into net prices if, uh, if the conversation goes that way. And I think the failure in drug pricing is, is that the same government that grants the patent, that gives that manufacturer the opportunity, doesn't manage that patent on behalf of consumers and employers, which ultimately, and taxpayers, which ultimately have to pay for the drug. Okay, thank you. Let's go to, um, unavoidably, this conversations or these conversations involve how the U.S. Uh, performs or manages uh, these issues relative to comparative countries. So let's, let's go to that. Obviously, the question here is how best uh, to manage drug prices or price growth. So let me begin by noting uh, the U.S. has adopted appreciably none, as I'm sure you're well aware, of common pricing policies employed by comparative countries. And I'll just uh, name three. So as you're well aware, among others, uh, comparable countries set or negotiate prices, not always by the government. Annual spending increases or annual spending growth, rather, is capped. And prices are typically linked to comparative therapeutic value or reimbursement is based on objective standards. So let's start with probably the leading uh, difference between the U.S. and other uh, rich countries, and that is the U.S., to put in technical terms, does not exert its monopsony power, and that is a government either regulating or negotiating prices. Now, we've seen more discussion about that. This was um, in, of course, the House bill this past Congress, H.R. 3, and the Biden platform included a negotiated uh, pricing uh, provision. So my question for you is, will we ever get there relative to some form of regulated or negotiated pricing in the drug uh, space? I mean, I think as a country, we will eventually get there, but I don't think it's going to be any time uh, soon. I think there is considerable uh, resistance to it. And I think in some ways, the way it may be ultimately uh, come about is I think as people realize in particular, and you've, you referenced this in, in some of your opening comments that the manufacturer uh, has the, uh, the ability, you know, a monopoly position through the patent and uh, exclusivity uh, laws and, and regulations, and then generates revenue and then uses that revenue to extend their patent by either keeping competitors off or making very small changes to the product and then hopping uh, the, the product. I think that a, you know, a policy that could bring the philosophical differences together is at some point that becomes anti-competitive behavior that, uh, people could agree that extending a patent for 20 years begins to go beyond what the original intent was. 
And so I could imagine down the road, not soon, but down the road, where drugs that are expensive uh, and also have had long periods on patent could begin to be pulled into a negotiation process. And that would be sort of the way I would guess, and that's what I'm doing here, that the U.S. could begin to get to a negotiation um, type of policy. So my answer is yes, but not anytime soon. Okay, thank you. You you do know that in the House bill, and as a follow-up, the House bill also included a provision to expand under the Medicare program uh, dental vision and hearing uh, reimbursement or services because the House bill was scored at close to 600 trillion, excuse me, 600 billion dollars over 10 years. So to what extent do you think that's a sweetener for policymakers? Because that's a lot of savings that could expand coverage appreciably uh, in the Medicare program. Right. And, and I, uh, so, I mean, in a sense, the, what, what you're saying in so many words is, is that drugs will be viewed as an offset. Correct. And um, I absolutely agree that going forward, uh, you know, in the next year, next two years, they will be viewed that way in, in the federal uh, arena. And as you know, and if, if you know H.R. 3, H.R. 3 has three pieces to it. It has the Part D uh, reform piece, it has mm. the inflation rebate, and then it has the negotiation component. And the nebo- negotiation component is obviously the biggest uh, component. But the Senate bill, uh, you know, grassly uh, widened, included two of those pieces, which is the Part D uh, reform and the inflation rebate. So in the short term, I, I could imagine that, and then there's also uh, set sets of smaller changes, some related to Medicaid uh, drug policy, that those two items and a handful of other items are viewed as offsets in the next uh, Congress or the next Congress and a half, if, if you will, the next year, next year and a half. And if somebody is trying to you know, push some kind of initiative forward, whether it's a coverage initiative or, like you said, a benefits expansion or whatever the case may be, drugs will be viewed as an offset. Now, whether they can get to a negotiation policy that could get through the Congress, I'm, as I've suggested, I'm more skeptical of that, or it would have to be a very skinny negotiation where you know a handful of drugs, because of their patent um, exclusivity, uh, got pulled into the process. But my sense is, is they work with the other proposals for the next year, year and a half. Okay, thank you. I will note as well, and you're well aware of this as the former ED of MedPAC, and that is the projections for the Medicare program solvency, in part because of the ongoing pandemic, are getting uh, bleaker and bleaker. Um, let me ask this as a, as a follow-up. I did mention these three, of course, the the biggest is the monopsy question or negotiation or regulated prices. But the other is, and this gets this is really the PCORI question in a sense, and that is most other countries or like countries comparable also have some form of, and the example oftentimes given, although the Biden campaign mentioned the German model, but the example oftentimes given is what the UK, the UK's NICE uh, 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 program 
which does uh, evaluate the therapeutic, as I noted uh, in my question, the comparative therapeutic value to try to assess the value worth of a drug. So this gets the comparative effectiveness research question, which Bacoy was banned from doing. Uh, will we get there whereby we have some form of entity in the U.S., if nothing else, for patients' purposes, for the consumers' purposes, will we have something, or might we actually, since we do have the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, might, might we give them some authority to, to do evaluations uh, in therapeutic drugs? Here again, I think that there is, um, I think there is a lot of political resistance uh, to that uh, that kind of analysis. And uh, Arnold Ventures decidedly cares a lot about that kind of analysis. And Arnold Ventures supports, um, you know, ICER, for example, um, in um, uh, its work in looking at drugs that way. I think that they're, you know, through the uh, uh, cost-effectiveness uh, model. Um, I think that activity will continue. It will be out there. Uh, the industry actually uses it when it's to its advantage and then, you know, criticizes it when it isn't. Um, and so as a function, it will continue um, out there. Your question is, is more, would it really be integrated as part of a, a policy? And I would say only in, and again, depending on the time frame we're talking about, and I'm talking about the near term, you know, the next couple of years, I think that there is a lot of political, unfortunately, a lot of political resistance to it. So I don't think it becomes a direct uh, measure or a, or a direct mechanism of determining uh, prices. It could be indirect in the sense that, you know, if, for example, there's this uh, kind of skinny down negotiation that you're potentially talking about, it could be a consideration. Alternatively, to the extent that people are using international re uh, prices as reference prices, some of those countries, as you've indicated yourself, uh, use it in reaching their prices, and so it's an indirect um, measure. I also think the other types of things, and you see this in the international pricing that makes it more palatable, is rather than fixing it at uh, either a uh, cost-effectiveness price or an international price, which may include some cost-effectiveness, uh, is for the U.S. to add a percentage to it. So in the HR3, uh, um, the, the lane that the negotiation can occur in is capped at 120% of an international uh, price. I think, so I think where I'm trying to land this is to say, as a very direct determinant of price, again, I think there is a tremendous amount of political resistance to it, and that it's either indirect or um, some years uh, off. The other thing I, I would say is if you think about it, I think the U.S. and the, the federal drug, uh, uh, you know, drug pricing policy process has taken a posture. I, I don't know how much this is articulated as much as, you know, just informs the debate, 
that all drugs are available in the U.S. The question is what to pay for them. And in the uh, in HR three, a manufacturer you know can walk away from the negotiation process, can you know refuse to accept whatever the negotiated price is, and still market their drug in this country. The the what HR three does is levies um, an excise tax uh, for that. And what I think is different about some of the European countries, and I believe the UK, the one you mentioned, is the use of the comparative effectiveness is often linked with whether the drug will be offered on the formulary. And if the manufacturer refuses the negotiated price, then they are not free to sell the drug, at least through their national health insurance um, uh, plan. If you see the the distinction there. In this country, it doesn't feel like in the uh, policy debate they've made a decision or are willing to make a decision to take a drug off a formula. Okay, uh, thank you. Let's let's stay with uh, the phrase international price. I, I do have a question also about another aspect of what we see overseas, but let's stay with international price because as you're well aware, uh, last week, uh, the administration dropped an interim final rule as a demo for seven years, and that's this most favored nation termed uh, policy. L- much discussion about whether it'll be legally challenged or not, but leaving that aside. Uh, wh- and, of course, the Biden campaign also had a similar uh, proposal, uh, and that was to reference international pricing. Where do you, where do you see that um, variation going? So I think this variation, you know, that using international uh, uh, prices as a reference, uh, I think does very much remain part of the legislative and the administrative uh, uh, debate agenda, uh, whatever word we're using here. And um, so let, let me try and go through this in an orderly way. I think that one thing that has um, had a lot of impact on uh, people's thinking, and by that I mean, you know, the citizens broadly, is the notion that other countries, that has really punched through, that other countries are getting the same drugs and they're paying a lot less. And that is a powerful political um, concern. And that, you know, that seems very clear in, in the public's mind. So the use of an international reference price, plus, if you think about it, there's, you know, there's fundamentally three ways to think about the price of a drug. We've discussed one, the cost-effectiveness approach. Two, you could sort of try and build a reference point from what other, you know, people are paying for it or even uh, internal to the United States, although that's a lot uh, more complicated or the cost of the drug. Of course, the cost of bringing the drug to market is very opaque and that information is not publicly available. So I think people gravitate to the international price because it's uh, it's understandable and it's out there. Now, it it does have flaws and can be manipulated, but it is um, out there. Now, um, and, and as 
we talked about just a moment ago, even in HR3 in the negotiation context, it's governed by 120% of the international uh, price. Now, to get to your question on the, uh, the demonstration on the uh, most favored uh, nations, as a concept, that, that makes sense, and I think that people will continue to consider it. I mean, if the Biden administration legislatively can't move, um, you know, changes uh, in, in drug pricing, will be likely to, con- I would guess, likely to consider administrative paths as well. Now, the proposal that was put out by the administration just recently has uh, some major uh, problems with it. So it would have to be seriously rethought and redesigned. And the, the major problem with it is, and again, I know you know all of this, in Medicare Part B, under current law, it works off of an average sales pl- price plus the 6%. And, you know, where a provider gets reimbursed that um, regardless of that provider's acquisition cost. So most transactions are covered by the ASP plus six, but there are transactions every day in which the provider is taking the drug at a price that is not fully reimbursed. But it is very much, you know, a small percentage of the transactions. If the international price is implemented without thinking about how the provider gets reimbursed, there could be a major shift in what drugs are purchased by the provider and made available uh, to the Medicare um, population. So you would have to think about things like whether, um, I think, I think I, it should be um, checked, but I think the president's proposal took uh, a, the, a lowest price that was out there. You could decidedly have averages. You could decidedly have averages plus percentages, 120% as, we, as we've been talking about, to make the price more palatable to the manufacturer. And you could also select categories of drugs, for example, that have greater alternatives, such that if a provider was unwilling to take the Medicare price, then there would be alternatives, and they would lose their market really quickly. Yes, thank you. You're you're right. It's uh, it's phrased. It's the lowest price per the most favored nation, right. That's and, what I thought. and although it's oftentimes termed the best price, and it is a bit of a skinny, as you to use your word, proposal in that it would take the best price or lowest of a group of countries for the fifty most expensive drugs. Um, bought for Medicare, for the Medicare program, so it's it's not an unlimited number. Per HR3, just to say per your 120%, uh, just to give an example of what these countries are, under the HR3, it was the average price for Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, and the UK. And since I mentioned NICE, um, just to be clear, it's the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence, uh, which is the entity uh, that drugs are approved and evaluated uh, in the UK. Let me go to this question. And this, I ask you because I'm genuinely curious, this almost never gets discussed. And one of the oddities amongst others relative to the U.S. Uh, pricing policy is that other countries, when they apply the policy, it applies to all patients. 
And you know, in the U.S., it's it's distinctly different. It's pricing policy is chaotic in the sense that there's pricing policies for some subpopulations, different policies for others. To what extent might might we get on the same page relative or comparable uh, other countries on this issue? Yeah. Okay. Um, some of that does go on. Uh, I think there were active, and, and I'm, I'm actually embarrassed because I'm forgetting the, the specifics, but um, uh, things like the um, inflation uh, rebate has uh, decidedly has spillover effects onto the commercial uh, mm-hmm. market and would, you know, provide, but I mean, your point stands. I mean, it would provide uh, some indirect um, effects. And there were concerns raised by the, you know, some commercial uh, purchasers that, you know, either they didn't want the policy because of a spillover effect or they wanted the policy to apply more broadly. So I think that conversation does get picked up. And unlike some of the other things that I've been saying is, uh, you know, that have a harder or, um, a less likely path. I think those kinds of discussions are being um, taken up. I mean, I should have said this somewhere a- a- along the line. I know it, and it, I know you know it, and I, I know it's, it's quite obvious. But most of the time, when we're talking about these international um, comparisons, their insurance system is very different. It is not as fragmented as as ours. And usually, when these decisions are made, they uh, apply uh, quite broadly. But to try and answer your question, I do think that there is a very strong interest in keeping the Medicaid reimbursement uh, system somewhat separate. But the notion being that, you know, this program is for the poor and that there is some sense that the best rebates and the best prices, you know, literally, I know that's a term of, term of art, apply to that uh, particular setting. But I think elsewhere in, in conversations, more and more the conversations do encompass uh, commercial and uh, Medicare. The negotiation in HR3 applied to both the commercial market and to uh, Medicare market. And I thought, at least in some of the discussions, but I don't know that it ever got into law, um, I thought the uh, inflation rebate was also, there was some back and forth in whether it would apply more broadly. Yes, thank you. Yes. Your organization, again, Arnold Ventures, does a lot of work, obviously, in this subject and makes any number of policy recommendations. So while you're not uh, as sanguine, properly so, I imagine, relative to these larger reforms, uh, let me ask you about Arnold uh policy reform proposals as it relates to drug policy. You do have specific proposals for Part B and D drugs, and then you have some uh, uh, policy proposals relative to, and since we started with, uh, you started with the patent uh, issue or the fact that we do not necessarily manage it well, you do have um, recommendations to uh, curb patent abuses. So feel free to start, but I guess on balance, what are, what are some of Arnold's more, say, ambitious or substantive uh, policy reform recs here. Well, I think um, I, I think there are questions and uh, uh, I, there there are policies around product hopping. 
There's policies around citizen uh, petitions. There's policy around, you know, the listing of uh, patents, uh, you know, orange books, purple books, uh, that type of thing. But the, I think the fundamental objectives that we have around the patent and um, I would also say uh, drug approval process, the FDA process is distinct from the patent process. Our overarching objectives, I think are a, a few things. One is, and let me start here, and I know you asked for patent, but let me start here. Uh, there's work you know, that we have going around the FDA where I think there are concerns around the transparency of uh, information and, you know, at, at a very fundamental level, like making sure that any clinical trial, whether it succeeds or fails, is publicly uh, available for people to uh, know the results and, and to learn from. And also some of the evidentiary uh, requirements, um, you know, the use of uh, endpoints as opposed to actual uh, patient outcomes, I think is is something uh, that we're um, uh, concerned about. And so there are there are issues around the FDA's um, uh, transparency and its evidence uh, process. Uh, another area is um, biosimilars, and in uh, biosimilars, the kinds of uh, issues and policies that we're interested in there are again evidentiary policy that the standard for getting a biosimilar approved is not so much higher than say a reference drugs standard that they have to meet from lot to lot that these drugs are able to come to market uh, more easily and then also to be able to be substituted more directly, which is also a function of both federal or both FDA approval process um, and also whether state policy uh, prevents uh, substitution of these drugs. So there's a whole line of kind of work and thinking there. On patents, I mean, I think what it comes down to in terms of our policies, and this is very difficult policy to craft, is, is that the, what gets patented more truly represents a breakthrough and also what... Um, how long the patent lasts, and it, either that the patent terminates or alternatively what we were talking about here, after some date, if there is not a viable um, competitor, which can often be the case, say, in a, a biologic, which is the direction that the uh, um, uh, pipeline is going, that then, you know, that you have to enter into some kind of government negotiation in order to renegotiate the price, which brings us back to our pricing policy. That's kind of a, a smattering of uh, around the patent and around the FDA process. Okay, thank you. Just to mention quickly, since you mentioned ASP, average sales price, you do have a Part B recommendation to reduce or reform uh, the AS, uh, ASP. I, I, my, my final question will be this, and I'm generally curious again. In my conversation with Bob Berenson, he argued regulating prices can or does drive competition, a, a position that is, I mean, you're well aware, is not widely held. Um, 
But there are those that argue, and there's some research out of Europe, um, limiting drug prices through this research uh, creates the same effect, meaning it drives can drive competition in that it shifts innovation to drugs with greater therapeutic value. So what's what's your sense relative to uh, this, what would have to be an alternative view, that being that a more regulation or regulated pricing does not uh, compromise or subvert competition, but actually can drive competition? Yeah, and so I... Um... I mean, I, I would say a, a few things. Actually, I might say a, a little bit about this. Um, you know, th- this all, all comes from, like, if you cut $1, then innovation will dry up and, you know, we won't, we won't have drugs that we want. And, and I want to be really clear. I absolutely believe that there's a relationship between what you pay and innovation and, you know, companies' willingness to, or, or investors' willingness to invest in, in companies. That said, I think there are a number of reasons in which this, uh, you know, the social compact to kind of go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation in which the government grants the opportunity to, to make money, to make a drug and to make money without competition and the government's responsibility to make sure that that doesn't get out of control and hurt consumers and employers and taxpayers. Um, that we as a country have to, to deal with this particular uh, question. And I would answer it a couple of ways. I would keep in mind that there is a lot of money in the system. So we're talking about, you know, a $500 billion annual spend here. And that there is going to be interest, investor interest, in creating innovations in order to tap into that, that revenue. So, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that there's a lot of money and that there is a lot of money that is not currently being directed into R&D. There's work that was done by uh, Peter Box Group that said um, the amount of revenue that comes out of the United States alone far exceeds the amount of uh, revenue that's put into R&D worldwide. In other words, you know, there's headroom here. And, you know, the pharma itself, you know, acknowledges that it spends vast amounts of money on advertisement, for example. So one thing I would keep in mind here is when, you know, you cut a dollar from a price, uh, there is – overhead, if you or sort of headroom, if you will. And I, I think people should keep that in mind. I do tend to think that in a, um, like, take a situation like a negotiation or take a situation like another country where they use, um, you know, like either negotiation or they use um, uh, comparative or cost effectiveness. In those countries, when you show up with an innovative drug, you may not get the price that you get in the United States, which is top dollar, but you get a high price because it's an innovation. And if there was some financial pressure put on manufacturers, I do believe that some of what you would lose are drugs that are more like, you know, just to use a term, you know, or more me too, 
and more likely creating pressure for the manufacturer to focus on a breakthrough or a drug that has a clear um, innovation. Now, I, I, you know, I, there's some evidence uh, for that, but I, uh, th this is more uh, an opinion than um, a fact. The other thing, I think, the last two things I, I would say about this is that, um, uh, you know, Europe has this, uh, this other system that uses these um, uh, negotiation or comparative effectiveness, and, and people often point to it as, you know, that's not the direction that this country wants to go to. But Europe largely has access to the same sets of drugs that we have. They just pay less for them, and they have a more viable biosimilars market than uh, the United States. And so sort of the knee-jerk statement that those kinds of methods will stifle and choke off innovation, I think, are, mi are misplaced. The, um, the other thing I would say is, is this, and this is the last thing I'll say on this. I'm sorry. No, so please. Long-winded. But um, the other thing I would say is I think we should need to have a more intelligent conversation of where innovation is occurring. I mean, to the extent it's a small company, single product, trying to break through, we may actually want to support uh, a company like that uh, and provide some kind of special support. And there's a couple ways that, that we could think about that. I think where the debate has gone wrong is, you know, pharma has said, you know, we're engaged in innovation. Any dollar taken from us stifles innovation. Well, that, you know, large pharma companies are not always where the innovation is occurring. It's often occurring in smaller companies where a pharma is waiting to purchase that company. And I think we should be thinking a little, with a more precision about where the innovation is occurring. And if we take the dollar from this particular part of the system, we may not be damaging, in, and particularly if we use it to support innovation in another part of the industry, we may not be damaging innovation at all. Okay, thank you. Per your note about uh, U.S. revenue, and you cite this in one of your documents, and that is U.S. generated 176% of the revenue needed to fund global R&D budgets. Uh, so with that, Mark, uh, we're at our time. So I do appreciate this discussion on uh, drug uh, pricing policy. I wish we had time to get it at quality and supply issues, which are um, uh, longstanding as well. But with that, I say thank you again. Okay. Take care of yourself.